HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, coming to you live from a very warm New England spring day. This is Severin, and this is Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Severin. How's it going? Tell me what's happening in the leaves of the trees where you are. Oh, it's really rainy. We haven't had rain for maybe about six weeks, so the last two days have been really wet, but... I've been walking along our key line ponds and swales and learning a lot about water management this um, early spring cool day. Uh, it's been quite nice uh, having a break from intense sunny work. Um, yeah, the plants needed it. So that's awesome. Let's go into a tiny bit of what is your job and where is it that you live? What do you have to do this spring? Yeah, uh, I live at New Forest Farm in southwest Wisconsin. Uh, this farm was started by Mark Shepard uh, as a perennial crops-based uh, location. Uh, we mostly grow chestnuts and hazelnuts, as well as a lot of apples and poplars and alders. And uh, in between the rows of trees, we also do vegetables. Uh, that's my primary role here is... Um, farming two acres of asparagus and uh, two acres of acorn squash, which are the spring and fall primary cash crops uh, for the farm. Um, I'm also going on various consultations with Mark this year and learning about the design process and about water management techniques. So I kind of am using vegetables as a way to get a part of the operation, but I'm trying to kind of expand my knowledge absorption while I'm here to something beyond uh, just vegetables. Yeah. So this is a day in the life of a perennial agriculture devotee working in one of the most high-profile perennial agriculture systems and getting your balance of work and learning. And are you living in a nice place? Like, is it a super beautiful place? Like, what's around there? We see the pictures from the aerial pictures, but, like, 
what's the local scene, social, economic, other crop-wise? Yeah. Um, so a day in the life begins before sunrise. I get up. I try and do some writing, and I try and walk around the farm, soak in the the dew and the bird song, which usually begins around 4:30. Uh, and then we, I usually try and pick asparagus before uh, it gets too warm. There's usually some midday tasks um, that can be done inside if it gets too hot. But the this the farm is about 30 miles away from the Organic Valley International Headquarters um, in Cashton and Lafarge, uh, Wisconsin. Mark was one of the first produce growers for that cooperative um, that has now obviously become more of an organic household name, but it started as uh, in a very small, you know, church basement for the first five or ten years. And so over the past two decades, that uh, has built up in the area to a coalition of almost 3,000 growers um, and yet the average size of the grower, guess it, what, is only five acres. So to have a, a cohort of small farmers that are pooling their resources together to now, after more than two and a half decades, become a billion-dollar company, it kind of shows the resiliency of that model and also of what needs to be done. It also shows, as you asked, what this region is somewhat about, um, there's lots of dairy farmers, lots of Amish in the region. There's um, probably a coalition of maybe five to seven towns within a half-hour drive from me that are about one to 5,000 in population. So it's a pretty rural area, lots of driving that I try to keep to a minimum. <clears throat> For people who live out in the country, they know what it means to go on a town run and how you don't want to have to do that too often. And so. I've been farming for a few years, and um, it's not that odd to live in the country, but traveling and living in a new area, I'm getting used to this region, and I can't get enough of the actual farm. I mean, having 20-year-old chestnut trees, um, the apple blossoms just finished. Um, we have lilacs as a um, windbreak, pesticide break for all of the monoculture madness around us. So. The actual farm I could probably poetically drown on about for a while, but that's the that's the general layout of my life for the moment. And how did you get here? Like, how did you figure out your way to becoming the protege at the top of at the top of the food chain? And how did you earn how did you earn that right? Like, how did you convince him to hire you? And I ask that not in order to choke your ego to give a big autobiography about yourself, but in order for you to help other young people think about how they can tuck their tail in and get such a good job as you got. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have a job. Mark doesn't employ me or pay for my food even at the farm or my gas or, you know, or lodging. You know, I, I provide everything and I get a check from Organic Valley. Uh, hopefully the first one will come this week uh, for the spring vegetable. So I it's an odd thing because it's not an internship or an apprenticeship or even a job. It's kind of a collaborative, like farming and stacking feastums, as Salatin says. So the model is a bit unique. Um, but the the thing I had to do is just go for it. Uh, it's kind of a cliche, particularly within business communities, to just you have to get started in some manner. Um, I've been farming for four four or five years now. 
um, on va- basic organic vegetable CSAs and through my experiences with flooding and drought and uh, susceptibility of um, salad greens to various climatic weathers um, and the prospect of future climate and social instability, I have been focusing my personal research on perennial crops and um, grazing systems for um, a few years now. And in doing so, I ran across Mark's book. I read it last year. Um, I said, this guy knows a few things. And so I went to the Acres Conference in Columbus in December of last year. I went to his presentations, um, asked him if he had any advice for young farmers, and he rather strongly said, you know, BS, you don't really want to farm. And I said, well, actually I do. And he's like, no, young people actually want to farm. Do you, are you serious? Let's talk afterwards. So I offered to buy him a beer, and it was full moon in Gemini on December 7th, and it was an intense conversation, but three hours later, he invited me to be a part of the operation. Um, it, it, it was a long conversation about how you kind of build rapport and discuss your history and your motivations, um, but I didn't come to that conference uh, expecting that outcome. Uh, I just came to learn, um, but I was confident in my abilities and honest in my goals for my life in this next year, and we seem to align. Um, so I was kind of brought to that opportunity and have been kind of learning my way through it uh, these past few weeks, months. Um, I, I arrived in late February, right before the Moses Conference in Wisconsin, and um, so for the past three months I've kind of been figuring out how to be a part of this and how to build collaborative enterprises with an already established consultant and speaker and such. So let's talk a little bit about the pros and cons of perennial agriculture. And um, you know, I just came back from from a trip to Europe for the farm hack, and my sister had getting married, so I had a good excuse. Um, but I talked to some people who were in the young farmers world over there, and you know, was trying to get a sense of where permaculture was fitting in over there, and it felt a little like. Um, Fringy over there too. So maybe let's just talk frankly about where permaculture fits in the young farmer movement right now, and where that's been going, and pros and cons. Uh, all you. Yeah, it would depend on what the word permaculture means, and it's a really dicey and sometimes overly broad term that I can I think deserves to be kind of fleshed out, um, both beyond this conversation and within it. Um, I think permaculture is uh, just like regenerative agriculture or restorative agriculture, agrarianism, whatever. These terms are on the on the cutting edge of the young farmer thought frame, in my opinion, and our economic system or at least the economic models that we have yet innovated are still catching up to the ideology. So there's plenty of books and people talking about it and usually making their money from consulting, but the point being that we still haven't actually, in my opinion, created replicable, even general models. There is an obsessive search for a singular model that can be just kind of copied uh, as this culture too often does and then 
put everywhere. That's not exactly possible with permacultural systems or polycultural or integrated grazing, annual and perennial vegetables. But there still has been less of a focus on business and financial sustainability as much as our um, inner hippie and ecological sustainability has been overemphasized. My view of it more briefly is to wonder about how we actually create models that are not only perpetuated by classroom um, or teaching-based financing, um, people with their PDCs or with their um, traveling workshops and such. Um, you know, Mark is making an increasing percentage of his income from that, but in the first decade or decade and a half, he made a lot of it from organic produce between his rows of trees. But as for chestnut and hazelnut products or dried apple slices and such, you know, these trees are not panning out, and it's 20 years in his operation. He's at the peak of his popularity so far, and yet those kinds of perennial-based products are still not paying any of the bills. Um, so I'm more curious even though I claim to be an uh, anti-capitalist of some sort, that's not the world we live in at the moment by my dreams of gift economies. And so what are the actual practical ways for financial sustainability and transition for perennial and permaculture farmers? Because it's no doubt that this will be the future of ecological farming. Like, we have to have thriving, healthy land bases if we're going to survive. The calamities that are to come in this next century don't really need discussion in this case, but it's obvious that we'll need these types of farming systems. It's more for me recently about thinking about the ways that can actually show that these are successful in more than just ecological but also economic ways. Well, and then of course, I mean, the 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 the, the, smallest, the smallest beautiful person inside me says, yes, I agree yep, that it's an, it's a, it's frustrating that many of our leaders um, are getting their revenue in agriculture are getting their revenue from being teachers or from working for nonprofits or from having a job as a you know minister or having. Uh, income external to the agricultural economy, and mm -hmm. then the other the other voice in me says, "Well, you know, we live in a nation that was stolen by colonial powers in order to provide low cost natural resources to economies in Europe. We have continued to pursue uh, exploitation and exploration of our continent, displacing uh, many populations in so doing." in order to continue to feed that low-cost, high-volume extraction of mm -hmm. natural resources and, and exported that model um, of land use around the world. And that mm -hmm. the that low-cost, high-volume production system, um, you know, undervalues the the produce of, from the land and undervalues the people mm -hmm. who work the land. And so it's mm -hmm. almost as if judging your economy of farming based on the economy that we have in the world today is, is kind of unfair to the farming. Um, and so that, Absolutely. Well, and so that, that uh, in, in that light, it's kind of, it, 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 it makes it a little easier, makes it a little easier to um, forgive yourself for, for, for making so little money. <laughs> and, and yet, the, I mean, Naomi Klein called it the extractivist mindset, uh, the type of colonial, imperial, et cetera, that you just mentioned. And we're slowly waking up to what it means to live in 
the industrial country that spends the smallest percentage of its income on food. I think it's between 6 and 10 percent that people spend money on food, and yet we have rampant heart disease, diabetes, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. Slowly, we're beginning to realize um, that food is important. There's dollars beginning to be switched toward organic, local, whatever that means, but still we live in this capitalist, imperial, colonial world, and I have my innumerable critiques, but that's the world that exists. And so if I'm going to farm today, tomorrow, next month, next year, for the next decade, I, I can't just predict a big collapse coming and then eventually the whole world will open up and see that my farming system is brilliant. I have to operate within the world that actually exists. And so if I'm going to do that, I still have to, Today, I opened up my first business bank account for my LLC that I'm starting, you know, so I'm, I'm still using money and transactions and checks and such, and so I want to do that well. Now, I am also, I have worked other jobs while I've been farming, just like most other farmers do. Mark, Mark Shepard even worked as a delivery person for the organic produce company that he you know, delivered to, so he would deliver the produce there, then get in the truck, and then go deliver produce to stores. And then he worked as a bread baker, as a musician, et cetera, et cetera. My claim isn't that we need to judge ourselves too harshly because self-judgment is not really eternally helpful. We, we can sometimes drown on in that. But I mean we need to be honest about that because so many people, including myself, that go to these conferences, w- read these books, witness these flamboyant presentations think that, oh, just put the trees in the ground, plant a few radishes between, you're going to be, um, you know, rich in a few years. So it takes combining methodologies. You know, I listened to your interview again with Jean Martin, and the types of work him and Curtis Stone and many others are doing, um, they're just the most prominent names. We have to actually talk about the finances more honestly because I've had many friends get into farming in the past few years and then quit, and now they're in their cubicles again because the ideology and the vision and the ecology uh, adoration that is so necessary to keep us addicted to the land, well, not addicted, but, you know, in service to, that still has to be tempered with some type of economic uh, sustainability as well. And that's... That seems to be my focus on on permaculture. If we're actually going to have models that other people in our community want to emulate, we can't be making, you know, ten thousand a year in net profit. That's just that's not going to speed this transition. That doesn't mean we need to be bathing in gold, but there still has to be some conversation about that because it's the real economy that we still you know, admittedly, unfortunately, within. Right on. So I hear you all the way. So what is your, what are the small insights that you can contribute to that? And maybe, you know, this is a thing that Joel Salatin talks a lot about, and maybe it's a good place to dive into that question is in terms of personal resiliency and how you personally, um, you know, save during flush times and spend carefully during lean times. Um, mm. some of the personal finance tactics that you think might be um, useful for other young farmers to think through moving from moving from like a, you know a college place or a, a late high school place um, into being a 
you know, young professional gaining skills, trying to learn good financial habits for a long, long endurance run in agriculture? Right. Right. I would, I would begin with, uh, I would encourage more honesty within the ecological farming, young farming community. It seems that finances are a bit of an embarrassment sometimes in our culture, like we want to be successful. And so to actually talk honestly about our finances is particularly difficult. I would recommend, uh, I mean, Luke Callahan's presentation at Permaculture Voices 2, if people want a copy of that presentation. He talked about business and he profiled uh, Rob Avis at Verge Permaculture, um, Eric Olson at Permaculture Artisans, Curtis Stone at Green City Acres, and he actually discussed the breakdown of their finances and what they spend their money on their first year was like, what their first five years is like. That kind of analysis to where we actually go into people that are supposedly successful, I would love for Mark to allow that type of thing to happen. Just if we want to have this type of thing be emulated, at least generally, we still need some more honesty, in it. and that's uh, you know, a bit of an embarrassment sometimes with people, but that's helpful. Second for me is collaboration. I need more conversation with young farmers. Obviously, I meet many through the young agrarians and greenhorns communities, um, but different people have different insights. And so I encourage people to actually talk to other people you meet that are doing similar things and be very frank and, and, and inquire you know, compassionately about how these people are making this meet. Some people are having their parents finance the operation, you know, and being trust fund people. We still need those models. Some people are borrowing in large quantities on debt. We need those models. Some people are getting grants and um, various uh, public fundings, NRCS, et cetera. We need those models, too. We need people doing commercial market farming. You know, there's, there's so many different kinds inquire to the young people around you. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what's helping me being isolated somewhat in southwest Wisconsin. There's um, more co collaboration and community. Those, those are my general two. I don't have tidbits. I'm still financially unsuccessful. I'm still beginning this transition. You know, I'm still solvent, of course, and, and above boat. But as for, like, long-term tidbits and tips, I'm not a person to really offer that. That doesn't mean I'm not thinking about these kinds of things, but there's, I seek other people's advice still on business because that's been something I've not, unfortunately, thought of much until it, you know, has become uh, more gripping. I'm, I'm more interested in the chickadee that was tweeting on top of the chestnut this morning and then the rare frogs that sing me to sleep in the evenings, you know, the, the butterflies that are not anywhere else in this county or region, you know, the, the clean water that we uh, create through our soil filtration, the, the carbon sequestration, you know, all these wonderful ecological things has been my focus. And so as for business, I'm, that's part of the reason I'm thinking about this is because I want to offer something to this cultural transition. What is a way to make young people more excited about this? You know, if they come into this and you talk to them about the chickadees and the frogs, they hopefully also see that beauty, but they also want to know, like, do I have to save up money and not make anything for three years? You know, what are cash flows after year one or two? Like, there still has to be that conversation, and as I try and welcome more and more people, and I'm sure that you have these experiences too, like as you try and welcome more people into being young farmers, 
being a part of this trans- great great transition, as Joanna Macy says, I, there has to be a, a slightly more comprehensive um, thinking behind this so that, and I'm curious on your thoughts, how do you actually welcome more people into these models, into this space that you're providing people nourishing, wholesome food? I mean, that's one of the most honorable professions in the history of humanity, I would argue. And so to actually do that successfully, there's so many dynamics that as I converse with people, I'm, I'm realizing I'm in a good direction, but I'm still inadequate in actually articulating what I can welcome people into or where the resources are or what websites and books to go to. There's somewhat of a, a, vo- a volume and a deficit of, of things to really aid people in, in this transition. Well, you're not alone in this quandary, and I don't think we're going to solve it in the next four minutes. <laughs> um, but I appreciate your honesty, and I, and I think it's a struggle. Um, it's, it's, it's a struggle for, for everyone to figure out what their version of success looks like. And, um, you know, meanwhile, it's not like getting a job working for an Internet startup or getting a job working mm-hmm. for a corporation is necessarily more secure over right. the long run as we see um, as as we see just in time delivery and offshore jobs offshoring of many skilled parts of our economy, the competition for stable jobs is increasing. So I um, I think even the like framework of your demand is you know, is inside of a social state that seems like it's fading, meaning the expectation for an economy that provides meaningful work and reasonable security to its workers, um, which is, of course, not at all what the economy, if it had a voice, would be saying to you that it's offering you. It, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be making that kind of assurance, that's for sure. Um, and so... Um, I think we should go into this more next time because I um, I just come back from talking to a lot of young farmers in uh, Italy and France and England about some of the programs wow. that they they and their elders have managed to enact there supporting beginning farmers, which are really different from the kinds of programs we have in the U.S. Um, and a lot more tailored to the needs not of the young farmers, not so much for training and low-interest loans, which is kind of uh, one of the major focus areas here, mm-hmm. uh, but actually direct payments for the beginning farmers um, for getting established and a lot of cost-sharing for them when they start building their business infrastructure. Um, wow. But if there's any, I want to make sure I don't, I don't cut you off if there was something urgent you wanted to announce or workshops or um, last thoughts. Um, and then I'm going to start plugging uh, the, or how about I'll start plugging self-rate events, and you can think about if you have a thought. Okay. So I do. So those, so, <laughs> so um, <laughs> those of you who are Greenhorns on the East Coast, you might have heard rumors about um, some of our fun upcoming East Coast sailboat events. Um, if you haven't heard about it, we are going to be again, repeating the stunt from last year of the sail freight project, and this time we're going to be sailing down from the coast, from Maine, down the coast in salty water with big white waves, uh, carrying produce 
especially beans and grains, flour, uh, many regional products from Maine to Boston, and we're doing a bunch of programming all along the coast uh, about the commons, about uh, sailing up the river, Kennebec River, on the Fox Island, uh, um, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, up the river, on the Gundalow. So there's a whole bunch of about that on the website and events. There's basically two or three events every month, all summer long. Meanwhile, back in the Adirondacks, Eliza um, Greenman, who's the director of biodiversity, is putting on a set of workshops. Um, the first one was last week, and she's got them coming up all the time as she's installing the mother orchard at the Greenhorn's headquarters there in Westport, um, planting bunches and bunches and bunches of trees and teaching people about the work of fruit exploring and heritage fruit pruning and, uh, well, she's really focused on hard cider right now. So those are the kind of two main areas for the Greenhorn Summer is on seeds and sales. Uh, or, sorry, that's not true. There's another whole thing, which is we're doing a seed week training, seed activism in New Mexico, and that's in September. And you should sign up at thegreenhorns.net slash seed week and talk to Cleo about that. So seeds, trees, and sales. Um, and then we'll be back again with more Greenhorns programming in February and August of next year. Anything from you, Tyler? Last words? Super brief. First is I encourage more young farmers to be vulnerable. Talk to each other about the things you're, like, struggling with. You know, we need to collaborate and hold each other in this space. The second is interpersonal work. If we're actually trying to help each other, like, welcome into these spaces, welcome more people from the dominant oppressive cultures, try and create some type of regenerative relationship with ecology, we have to meet them where they're at. We have to be more compassionate. And the third is work with Greenhorns. I think Greenhorns, your book, 50 Dispatches from the Young Farmer Movement, helped me pull out of my pre-law major back in 2011-2012, and so I'm thankful for what you're doing, and I encourage all of us to continue collaboration and conversations, because we're at the beginning of this transition, not the end, not even the middle. This is an inevitable part of our future. We just want to make it more thriving and beautiful, and I'm grateful for both of our roles in this ongoing, gorgeous unfolding. Tyler, thank you. Thanks for being there. Thank you all for listening, and Let's just all keep on keeping on. Drink some cold green tea. Stay happy. Bye. Awesome. Talk more with you soon. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.